At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? Eric Barker was a British missionary who served in the country of Portugal for nearly 50 years towards the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th centuries. Eric faced a lot of different hardships in the midst of his ministry, but one time in his life he encountered a particular challenging moment of suffering in his life. It was right before World War II, and in Portugal in those days, things were getting uh, pretty harrowing and distressful, and so Eric and his wife decided to make the decision to send his eight uh, children and his wife back home to England while Eric would remain in Portugal to continue on uh, the ministry. The Sunday after his family uh, left to head back home, uh, Eric got up in the pulpit before his congregation and began the service that day by saying, I just have received word that all my family have arrived safely home. And then he proceeded that morning to continue on with the service. It would only become apparent to the congregation later that the words that Eric shared with them that, that morning were true in a very different way than they had interpreted. Because right before the service, Eric had received word that a torpedo had struck his ship and his wife and all eight children drowned. He faced one of the worst, most devastating moments that any father, any husband, any person could face, and yet in that moment was able to look forward to the hope that his family was indeed home and safe with the Lord. When I hear Eric's story, it naturally raises for me a question. How does one face the worst moments of life and yet have the sort of faith that can endure that kind of tragedy? Because the reality is the suffering that Eric experienced, while terrible, is not unique. Many of us face horrible and terrible circumstances, loss of loved ones, suffering over all sorts of different Things And yet, how does a man in the midst of that stand up in front of his people and somehow point forward to Jesus? How in the midst of suffering, loss, and hardship do we endure? How do we have faith in the midst of those sorts of seasons? Well, I think in some ways, Eric's answer points us towards what we're going to explore a little bit today. Because as Eric pointed his congregation forward to the hope that he had in Christ, Jesus, in the passage that we're studying tomorrow, today, begins to deal with one of the worst and most harrowing moments that his disciples will face in their lifetime. And the way Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for that moment is to point them towards the future. Because what we believe about the future ultimately influences our faith today even in the worst moments of life. 
So that said, let's jump in a little bit to our passage this morning. If you remember, we kicked off this series that we're calling What Now? where We're looking at Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24 and 25 about the things that are ultimately to come. And so the way this passage began last week is Jesus essentially gives a prediction that the Jewish temple is going to be utterly and completely destroyed. If you remember last week, we talked about how this is about 40 years, 30 to 40 years before this actually takes place, that in AD 70, the Romans would enter in Jerusalem. They would actually completely level the temple and destroy the city. But Jesus essentially predicts that this is going to come in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 24. And his disciples hear this and naturally ask Jesus the question, well, if this is going to happen, when is it going to happen? And if that's the case, what are going to be the signs then of your return and the coming end of the age? They knew that this would signal something significant in in the world. And so they asked Jesus this question. And Jesus essentially begins his teaching with what we looked at last week by saying, hey, these are all the things that aren't the signs of my return and of the end of the age. And then he points them towards his focus that I think Jesus often does in the midst of the questions of final things and says, but you have a mission that you are called to be about. And my gospel is to get to the ends of the earth. But now Jesus in verse 15 begins to shift to a new focus in his teaching. And he begins to prepare his disciples for a very significant, for this very significant event that's going to take place within their lifetime. Now, remember, when Jesus teaches here in this passage, he has a a dual lens. So as we jump into this, we're going to get into some tricky things, but you kind of got to look at it through two ways. Jesus is both preparing his disciples for an event that's going to happen in their lifetime when the temple is destroyed, but he's also using it as an opportunity to prepare all of his followers for what will take place at the end of the age when these things come. It's kind of like, you know how like when you have an iPhone and you pull open the, the Photos app, or maybe you, maybe you have an Android phone, I don't use that, that's for other people, but um, and, yeah, I know, oh, there, oh, I didn't mean to stir up the debate, sorry, but anyway, if you know how you have an iPhone, you pull up the camera app and you can like look at one scene and it has like the normal view and then you can like swipe over to the wide view and it kind of opens up to like a larger picture of what you're looking at. Think of that as kind of what Jesus is doing in this passage. He looks at a narrow part of what his disciples are going to experience, but he uses it kind of with a wide-angle lens to say, let me also prepare you for what's going to happen ultimately at the end. And so Jesus begins to kind of prepare them, but also prepare us in the same way. And I think he has some really important things for us to say. The first thing comes apparent right away in verse 15. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now that's a really weird phrase that Jesus brings up, the abomination of desolation. You're like, what is going on here? Well, what Jesus begins to do is he begins to warn his disciples, about a specific event that's ultimately going to happen, that's going to signify this destruction and this judgment that's ultimately going to come against the temple. Jesus is actually picking up a phrase from the Old Testament, from the prophet of Daniel, which Matthew alludes to here. And Daniel had promised that there was going to become a time where someone would come and they would do something so heinous against the temple that it would be such an abomination, it would actually bring desolation. You can actually see this in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, where Daniel makes this prophecy. He says, he, 
referring to this prince, referring to this person, is shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Daniel will later in the book use another opportunity to describe this moment, this event, and what this person will bring. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, he says, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. So this person and these forces are going to come. They're going to profane the temple. They're going to take away the burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Now, in Jesus' day, these prophecies of Daniel were actually held to refer to a certain specific event that had happened 190 years before Jesus was teaching the disciples in our passage today. In 167 AD, Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the Syrian king, marched into Jerusalem, attacked the city, marched into the temple, and set up in the sacred place that the Jews held as the holiest place where God's presence was, an idol to Zeus. Then Antiochus went on to sacrifice a pig, which was an unclean animal, an abomination, to the way the Jews worshipped on the sacred altar. And then he would lay siege on the city so much that 40,000 Jews would die and several thousand more would ultimately be in prison. And many in Jesus' day referred to that moment as that was when the abomination of desolation came. So when Jesus uses this imagery with his disciples, this is what they think of. They think of this event in the past. But what Jesus says is actually that event that you think isn't entirely what Daniel's referring to. He's actually referring to another event that's going to come, and it's going to come in your lifetime. And so what Jesus begins to do is he essentially says, when you see this act repeated, when you see this moment where the temple, the holy place, where abomination is brought into it and where desolation begins to occur, then you need to be prepared to run. You need to be prepared to get out. That's why he says, let, then, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I had this image in my mind. I laughed when I was reading this passage. I was watching Jurassic Park recently with my kids. And if you ever watched the old school Jurassic Park, you remember there's this moment where Dr. Alan Grant, it's like after the dinosaurs get out, he comes over the hill and he sees his girlfriend who just escaped the velociraptors. And she has this harrowing look on her face. And she just looks at him and goes, run. That's what I feel like Jesus is saying. He's like, when you see this, when you start to see these same acts repeated, run, get out. I mean, he, he can't make it more urgent. He says, if you're on your house, they would have had flat roofs in those days. Like, don't even go down into your house to get stuff. It's almost like jump off and get out. Or he says, if you're in the field, don't even turn back to take your cloak. They would have worn cloaks over that they would have set aside to do their work. He said, don't even go pick that up. Leave. And if you're pregnant or you're nursing, man, you're even in worse trouble with how fast you've got to get out of this city. And you better pray it's not winter because it's going to be terrible. Like Jesus is sounding the alarm to say, listen, when you see these things happen, be ready because you're going to experience a terrible time. God's judgment is going to come against his people. 
In fact, this is what would happen. The Rome would attack the city. Beginning in 66, they would pause for a little bit while they had a civil war and they would turn in 70. And the disciples would face a terrible, or the people in Jerusalem, I'm sorry, would face a terrible time. Titus, the commander, would cut off supplies to the city of Jerusalem when they laid siege to the city, so much so that the people inside Jerusalem began to starve. Josephus, a Jewish historian who accounts that time, recounts the story of one mother who was willing to kill her own son and eat him just for the sake of food. That's how terrible the circumstances were. There would be abject war. The city would be devastated. 1.1 million Jews would be killed and over 90,000 enslaved. God's judgment was coming against his people. And what Jesus says is when this is about to take place, you need to be ready to get out. But Jesus also wants them to know that the events that they're about to experience are also going to signify an even greater time of judgment that's ultimately going to come. Remember, there's a narrow lens and a wide lens. That's why Jesus says in verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. When God brings his judgment, suffering comes with it. It did in 70 AD, and it will ultimately come in the end. And Jesus wants his people to be prepared for the fact that they will face suffering, both in this day, at the end of all time, And even in our lives today, I think one of the things Jesus reminds us in these verses is that we need to know that suffering will come, that suffering is a part of life, that all of us will experience suffering. The world will experience it in an ultimate scale, but you and I, because of a sinful, broken world, experience suffering on the regular. There are moments in our lives that are terrible that we experience the judgment of our sin, not in its ultimate sense, but in its localized sense that foreshadows what's ultimately going to come. Every time we suffer, it's a reminder of God's judgment against sin. Similar to how whenever you suffer an injury in your body, it's a reminder that one day, unfortunately, death is coming for all of us. When you go to the doctor and you get that report, when you break a bone, when you recognize the frailty of who we are, it forces us at times to deal with the reality that life forever is not promised, that our bodies are in decay. Likewise, when we face suffering, when we lose loved ones, children, when we face disease and diagnosis, when we face the things in our lives that force us to deal with the ultimate reality that, man, one day because of our sin, there is judgment and a finality coming. We oftentimes want to run from suffering, but the Bible reminds us again and again that all of us will face it, that even as Christians, we are not immune to suffering that we will encounter. And Jesus reminds us that this great suffering to come means we will face it even in the present. George Ladd, New Testament professor for a a long time at Fuller Seminary says, the modern evangelical fear of suffering in the great tribulation has forgotten the biblical teaching that the church in her fundamental character is always a martyr church. The true victory consists of conquering the beast by loyalty to Christ to death. 
We will face suffering. The question is, will we endure? Right? Jesus in verse 13 says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's not that we won't face suffering. It's will we endure through it? And you have to wonder that the disciples at this point are like, well, this sounds terrible. Like, what do you mean I have to go through all of this in my life? Like, where's God in the midst of this? And how do I know that God's going to actually do something about it, right? You can almost feel, I wonder if the disciples are a little bit prone to despair of like, what? what? Like, this is all going to happen again? And what does this all mean? And where's God? Well, Jesus steps in then to kind of give them the assurance that even though suffering is going to come for them, God gives assurances in the midst of that suffering. You see the first thing come right away in verse, 20, or verse 22. I'm going to read 21 again so you can hear that context in the flow. He says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. So Jesus essentially says, listen, when judgment comes, when suffering comes, if God doesn't intervene, who has hope? No one. But look what he says next. But... For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. You see, what essentially Jesus promises his people in the midst of suffering is that God is going to intervene. And he's going to intervene for the sake of his people, his elect, his chosen people. That God promises that evil will not ultimately win the day, but that he interacts in the midst of evil to accomplish his purposes. Now, in some ways, we know this to actually be true in the narrow lens sense of what will happen in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. Many people point that when Rome initially lays siege to Jerusalem in 66 AD, that there was a pause for a time because of some unrest in Rome, and that during this time, many Christians fled the city. They heard Jesus' signs. And tradition tells us that by 68 AD, most Christians had left the city of Jerusalem before the final destruction had come because of Jesus' warning. But in the wide sense lens, Jesus is also reminding us that when God's final judgment comes, and when God ultimately returns and the suffering and tribulation to come, that God will intervene then to continue to protect his people. God intervenes on behalf of his own. This is an incredible statement that Jesus makes in verse 22 when he says, but the, for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. It's incredible in two reasons. One, it's incredible about God's care for his people. The second reason it's so incredible is because it points us towards the fact that God is absolutely sovereign over all events of history, including evil and suffering. That God will intervene into the worst moments of history and accomplishes his purposes. That he will not leave evil ultimately unchecked. It doesn't win. God wins and God can use the worst moments of life in history in his plan. God is absolutely sovereign. 
He's sovereign over this tribulation in 70 AD. He's sovereign over the final tribulation to come. And he is sovereign over every tribulation that you face in your life. He is in control over it. It is not out of his plans and purposes. There is not one millisecond of your life, not one event, blessed or tragic, not one moment of pain, evil, or suffering that God is not sovereign over and has ordained for his purposes. Jesus is clear. God intervenes in tribulation for the sake of his people. This is why the Apostle Paul would come along later and encourage the believers with verses like Romans 8, 28, where he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not some things, not just the good things. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Or Paul would write to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 4, and say, we do not lose heart. Though our outer selves are wasting away, though we're experiencing the suffering and trials, the tragedies of life, our inner selves are being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God is sovereign, and because he's sovereign, he can take your worst moments and use them for your good and for his glory. And Jesus calls us to remember that, to trust in God's sovereignty when life is at its worst. When you suffer, trust that he is sovereign, that he has allowed whatever you are going through for your good and his glory. I was reminded of this truth through the story of William Carey. William Carey is often known as the father of modern day missions. He left his home in England in the late 1700s and moved him and his family to the country of India. And William Carey would spend the majority of his life ministering in India he was brilliant, a brilliant linguist. He would translate portions of the Bible into over a dozen different native languages in India during his lifetime. But one day, in the midst of his ministry, William Carey faced a moment of tragedy. While he was out traveling, he came back from some time away, came back and found that his printing press and his shop, where he did all of his printing and publications, had caught fire and burned to the ground. William Carey lost 20 years of work in translating the Bible and printing it. He lost manuscripts, he lost original translation work he had done, he lost books, and he lost his ability to print and produce. I mean, they didn't have, like, backup hard drives then. Like, he couldn't just copy it onto the new computer. Literally lost everything. Yet, it was the sovereignty of God that allowed Carey to continue on his work in the midst of that tragedy. He would write shortly after that time to his friend, Andrew Fuller, and in that letter, Carey would 
articulate how God's sovereignty influenced his ability to carry on. He wrote this, The ground must be labored over again, but we are not discouraged. We have all been supported under the affliction and preserved from discouragement. To me, the consideration of the divine sovereignty and wisdom has been very supporting. I endeavored to improve this, our affliction, last Lord's Day from Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. My dad has often said to me, if I did not believe in the sovereignty of God, I'd go mad. And I think it's an important statement. One that Carrie reminds us of. Because how do you face tragedy, losing a life work, and then pick it up and continue on? It's only if you believe that God is sovereign, that he has purposes in suffering, that it isn't meaningless, that whatever tragedy that you've experienced in your life is not outside of his control. We live in a secular world that tells us that suffering is to be avoided, that there's no meaning in it, and we should avoid it at all costs. But Scripture reminds us time and time again that because God is sovereign, then he can appoint meaning even in suffering, even in tragedy, that he can prepare for us good and glory in eternity out of those moments, and that we can take heart and trust in God's sovereignty and control, that we can say, like Joseph said in Genesis 50, after suffering through jail, through being sold into slavery, could look back on the events of his life and say, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. It's only when we trust the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering that we can have hope that our suffering is not meaningless and that even these disciples and the suffering they would face were not, was not meaningless. But Jesus gives them a second assurance, a second thing to look for in the midst of the suffering that they will encounter. You see it in verse 23. He says, then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner room, do not believe it. Jesus begins to draw his disciples' attention towards his final coming and return. But before he does that, he wants to first remind them, as he repeats throughout this teaching, don't be deceived by those that will come and pretend to come in my name or pretend to be me. That there will be false prophets and there will be false messiahs who come to proclaim deliverance to you when it is not yet my time to return. And some of these will perform great signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are not necessarily a symbol of those that God has chosen. So he says, be careful, be alert, be astute. And in fact, the disciples would experience this. In the events leading up to 70 AD, Josephus, the historian, talks about how there were many false messiahs that arose. And some would come in the wilderness because they believed the prophecies that the Messiah would come in the wilderness. Some claimed to come in secret, in inner rooms, because some thought that the Messiah would come in a secret way or a secret place. And so even these disciples faced many false prophets and messiahs in their day. But again, Jesus also wants to remind us in the wide lens view 
that in the time leading up to his return, there will continue to be many false messiahs. There will continue to be many false prophets. There will be those that try to distract us from setting our hope on Jesus. And when we look back throughout history, and even today, we continue to see the influence of those that will try to lead us away from keeping our focus on the return of Christ. There are false prophets in our day, like the prophet Muhammad or Joseph Smith, that proclaim false revelation from God, that manipulate the true teachings of Christ. There are sects that claim to be Christian, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, who teach that Jesus secretly returned in 1914 and is now gathering his people now. And throughout history, there will, and there will continue to be in our lifetime, and in the days and months and years ahead, there will be men and women who rise up as false prophets and false messiahs. It's why we have to be diligent in studying the scriptures, in testing the claims of everyone, It's why Jesus teaches in Revelation to the churches to be astute of false prophets. But Jesus essentially says, when I return, you'll know it. When I show up, it won't be muddied. It'll be very clear. And the hope that he wants to remind his disciples is realize that my return will be unmistakable. That's what he says in 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. I don't know if you ever looked up at the sky when lightning strikes, but it doesn't just light up one corner, right? It flashes across the sky. That's the imagery Jesus is saying. When I show up, it's not just going to be in one little corner that you're going to miss. When I return, it's going to be evident. We see in Scripture, the trumpet will sound. He'll descend. There'll be signs to point us to. You won't mistake it. When Jesus shows up, you won't miss it. And when he shows up, he's bringing judgment to judge the earth for its sin. Christians have proclaimed this for 2,000 years. It's why in our creed we say, the Lord will return to judge the living and the dead. This is what is coming. That's why Jesus says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will be. You won't miss him. He will bring judgment. And when he does, you won't mistake it. But for those that are in Christ, the symbol of his return, the hope of his return, is what we look towards. Because we know in his return also comes deliverance, rescue, and restoration. And so Jesus encourages his disciples to say, don't be distracted by those who claim falsely in my return. Instead, be ready, look for it, be prepared, because when it comes... It will bring what you hope for. It will remove suffering. I will wipe every tear from your eyes. And for my chosen and my elect, there will be the ultimate deliverance. I think the principle that Jesus wants to remind us here is that not only in suffering do we need to remind ourselves of God's sovereignty, but we also need to set our hope on his return. That he will come to judge evil and deal with injustice, but he will also come to restore, to save, to set the world back to its right intention where there is harmony and justice and goodness and that we can hope in this. And so Jesus presents to his disciples that suffering is a reality, but endure, 
Set your hope on my return because with it will come the deliverance that you long for. You see, I think what Jesus wants to remind us of throughout this whole passage and the idea that we need to take away this morning is don't be surprised when suffering comes. Don't be surprised. It's coming. It's part of the reality of living in a sinful world. It will ultimately come when God comes to judge sin and evil. But what Jesus does do is in the midst of that, don't be surprised, but set your attentions on the things that will allow you to endure those moments in your life. Set your mind and your heart that God is sovereign and in control. That the worst moments of your life, he still controls for your good and his glory. Set your mind and your heart on the hope of Jesus' return and the good things that come with it. How do we set our hope on that? By looking back to what Jesus does for us in his death and resurrection. We can only set our hope on the returning Christ when we remember it's the same Christ who went to the cross to pay for our sin. And then three days later came out of that tomb to announce he had defeated Satan's sin and death and that God's kingdom was beginning to enter into the world. We have hope in the future because of what Christ did on his death and resurrection. And when we set our hearts there, it gives us hope that no matter what suffering we face, Jesus endured a greater suffering on our behalf so that our suffering can have meaning and purpose. So that God sovereignly can bring about what he desires to bring about. We started this morning by hearing the story of a man who lost his family. I think there's another man who lost his family who also reminds us of the importance of what we can set our mind and our hearts on. The man's name is Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a wealthy businessman in Chicago in the late 19th century. He was colleagues with D.L. Moody. And Horatio Spafford faced many challenges in his life. One challenge that he faced was during the Great Chicago Fire, he had significant investment on the north side of Chicago that he lost a huge percentage of his wealth when that fire struck many, many years ago. But shortly after that, in dealing with some of the aftermath, Horatio Spafford decided for him and his family to travel for a vacation in England. His friend D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, was teaching there, and Spafford decided to travel overseas to be with them. And at the last minute before the journey started, Spafford got detained with some business things that he had to take care of, and so he sent his wife and four daughters ahead. While they were traveling across the Atlantic, they were struck by another boat. Their boat sank. Only his wife survived, and when she got to England, she sent a telegram back to Horatio Spafford with simply the words, saved alone. Devastated, Spafford quickly and hurriedly got on a ship to travel across the Atlantic to be with his wife. And on that trip, in suffering the loss of his four daughters, he penned one of the most famous hymns in Christianity. The hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And when you hear how, where Spafford focused his attention in the midst of the tragedy, I think we see an illustration of the principles that Jesus teaches us even today. 
He begins that famous hymn, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, whatever comes, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Then Spafford would end his hymn with this crescendo, and Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Friends, when we're anchored in the truth of the gospel, when we know that God is sovereign, when we set our hope on Christ, then no matter what comes our way, no matter the tragedy we face, no matter the suffering that we endure, we can say, it is well with my soul because I have hope in a God who saves. I have hope in a God who brings meaning out of suffering. I have hope in a God who has a plan and a purpose, not only for my life, but for this world that we would enjoy his goodness for all eternity. And so may we this day set our hope on a sovereign God. May we set our focus on our great King Jesus and the hope of his return. And whatever you face in life, may you be able to say as Stafford did, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. That's my prayer for us today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we stand in this moment thankful. Thankful that you are who you are. That you're faithful. That you're sovereign. That you're powerful. That you're wise that you are good. Not only that, we're thankful for what you have done in Christ Jesus. That you, in your grace, paid for our sin, covered our iniquity. And you rose, defeating the enemy, defeating death, ushering in the beginning of your new creation. So we stand in this moment thankful, God, that because of who you are, because of what you've done, we can have hope in the midst of suffering. That we can trust in you. That you've demonstrated your love and your power in Christ Jesus. And that when you return to judge, we can look forward to that day knowing that with it comes redemption With it comes life eternal. So God, I pray right now for my brothers and my sisters who are here. Even for those, Lord, who might be watching online right now. I don't know what the suffering they have faced in their life. What they might be going through right now, I don't know what they will face. But what I do know is that you have meaning in it. And you have purposes for our good and for your glory. So I ask for each one of us that you would give us the faith, 
the trust necessary by your spirit to hold fast to your truth, to hold fast to the reality of who you are, to hold fast to the gospel, to have hope in the worst moments of life. God, we know suffering will come, but give us the faith and hope necessary to endure to the end, I pray. We love you, Jesus. We're so thankful for you this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.